0: Here it
1: is. From deep inside your radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the godly. I'm speaking to you today from New York City. Recently, the site of a visit. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, uh, The Pope was here in the United States this week. You know, the Catholic one? And uh, he made some news, supposedly, supposedly, as O.J. Simpson once said, and um, including his um, closed-door meeting, reportedly, today, Sunday, uh, in Philadelphia. Tom? Philadelphia? Philadelphia? Yeah, with uh, some actual victims of priestly abuse. That's uh, behind closed doors, you know where the stuff originally happened. But in a prayer service at St. Patrick's Cathedral here in New York City earlier in the week, in public, the Pope, Pope Francis, told the assembled members of religious orders and diocesan priests that he understood they had, quote, suffered greatly, unquote, because of the clergy sex crisis and from the shame of, quote, the shame of some of your brothers who harmed and scandalized the church through the most vulnerable of its members, unquote. So got got to the members eventually. Pardon pardon the thing. The uh, crisis, which first drew public attention in the mid-1980s, erupted in 2002 in the Archdiocese of Boston, then consumed the entire American church. At the height of the scandal, many priests said they stopped wearing their collars in public Or refrain from hugging or touching any child they didn't know well for fear of evoking the misdeeds of others. It was the Pope's second reference to the scandal on this trip. On Wednesday, he commended the U.S. bishops for their, quote, generous commitment, unquote, to helping victims. That angered advocates for victims who say American bishops acted only when forced to by lawsuits and government investigations. The Vatican spokesman denied the Pope was giving short shrift to victims in his remarks saying he gave them no shrift. No, he didn't say that, saying he'd acknowledge them by referring to the children as the most vulnerable members of the church. And if if they're not grateful for that, also, this in the news regarding the visit, you uh, are aware, I'm sure by now, that the vehicle of choice for the Pope when he arrived in the United States was not a, a large limousine. It was a Fiat 500. Says uh, the Washington Post, he appeared in Washington in what appeared to be an identical car and is also using a Jeep Wrangler during this visit. Nutty coincidence, Department. Both Fiat and Jeep Wrangler cars are manufactured by the same company, Fiat says a fiat dealer in Washington, to the Washington Post, it's created a lot of buzz. We're very grateful for that. It's advertising we don't have to pay for. When asked whether fiat had lobbied to be the Pope's car of choice, a company spokesperson declined to comment. Well, there's nothing suspicious about that. You know, company public relations people are noticeably closed mouthed when Their products get free advertising. You know, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, it was a a very moving moment when uh, 535 people who had been elected in uh, open, if compromised, elections by their fellow citizens sat in rapt rapt attention uh, while they were lectured as to how they should uh, run the world. By a man selected by, uh, in secret, by one hundred protectors of pedophile priests. No, I. You know what I mean. Um, in in all honesty, it, we we witnessed a miracle this week here in the United States. For the first time in, um, gee, I'd I'd say living memory now. Thanks to Pope Francis. It was impossible for an entire week for Donald Trump to be on television. Hello, welcome to the show. <laughs>
2: A ninguém com isso Tudo que eu te peço É por tudo que fiz Sei que mereço Posso e te confesso Você não sabe Dá-me isso um terço Tanto choro e pranto Arrindo dando na cara Não ofereço a face De sorriso amarelo Não te perdoa Tendo todo ponto Nada me transtorna Dentro do meu peito Desejo um martelo Uma vontade de gola oh, Uma vontade de vigor. Amarelo dentro do meu peito, uma vontade de bom desejo martelo. Tanto desencanto, a vida não te perdoa.
1: new york city imagine that i'm harry shearer welcoming you to this no stop imagining now it's true i'm harry shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show and now ladies and gentlemen news of the olympic movement produced by jim Eversoll jr Well, this should come as a relief to olympic officials the hungarian government will not hold a referendum on Budapest's bid for the 2024 summer games the hungarian government which as you know has uh, taken a hard line towards european migrants recently or migrants to europe recently has issued a statement to shoot down quote various misconceptions unquote about the possibility of a public vote on the bid Saying there's already quote solid support and a powerful unity, unquote behind the project, according to a public opinion poll published this week, 51 percent of Hungarians want a referendum. 46 percent back the Olympic bid. 41 percent are against it. Well, that's kind of like a referendum, except it doesn't count. Of course, neither does a referendum. The same has said such referendum is neither required nor expected by the International Olympic Committee. Unquote. No kidding. Quoting again, consequently, there are no plans to hold a vote whether we should bid or not. Unquote. The statement said the city of Budapest and the national parliament passed resolutions in favor of the bid with support of more than 80 percent. On the other hand, the bid by Hamburg must face a binding referendum this November. The uh, former Boston bid would have had to face a November referendum next year but uh, it was derailed already by poor public support. Krakow, Poland dropped its 2022 Winter Games bid when it lost a referendum last year. Budapest is competing for the 2024 Games along with Rome, Paris, Hamburg, and Los Angeles. So, um, Hungarian government doesn't want refugee doctors from Syria coming in, just Olympic visitors with money. Uh, The bad news for Rio de Janeiro ahead of the 2016 Olympics keeps coming. Scores of dead fish have appeared in the Rodrigo de Freitas lagoon. It's my favorite lagoon. and, And apparently not the fishes. Just over a year to go before the city hosts the Games Rowing and Canoe Competition, officials with the Legislative Assembly of Rio launched an investigation into the causes of death, both in the lagoon and in other lakes and bays in the state in which the phenomenon has occurred. The group is working in partnership with the State Environmental Institute and the Secretariat of State for the Environment. Don't confuse the two. Officials defended the belief that the latest rains caused temperature change in the water and the excess of decaying organic matter, which would have led to a lack of oxygen, which would have led to killing the fish. That couldn't happen next year. The note released by officials highlighted the amount of dead fish has generated a bad smell. And inconvenience to those who live near the lagoon. And all the tourists who flock to the area until they stop flocking. Stop flocking! Last week, newly obtained video from the newspaper O Globo showed a sailor crashing into trash floating in Guanabara Bay. That happened in February and involved two professional sailors. The impact was so great, the boat was forced onto its side. I know the feeling. Rio de Janeiro has pledged to reduce pollution, as you know, but they're not going to. Last year, biologists said rivers leading into the bay contained a super bacteria resistant to antibiotics that can cause urinary, gastrointestinal, and pulmonary infections. Not just any bacteria, a super bacteria. Because it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And over that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a week to sort of marvel at the magic of the market, if you would uh, exclude the alliteration. Norwegian salmon farmer Salmar has found itself embroiled in a scandal in Norwegian media over its use of a restricted substance, since banned by authorities, never too late, to address sea lice (laughs) at three of its salmon farms. A Norwegian newspaper this week reported that Salmar had used your friend and mine formaldehyde to destroy sea lice at three farms in central Norway over the past year, even though the company didn't apply for permission to use the substance with the Norwegian Food Safety Authority as is normally required, according to the newspaper. The uh, head of Salmar, Carly Fieri, no, she's not the head of that, Leif Inge Nordahammer, Confirmed it, but explained the way the company applied the substance meant that its use was in the law. The fish were taken from the sea into a well boat in which the formaldehyde was added and then were added back into the pen in the sea. The fish won't be slaughtered within the next 500 days of the treatment, by which time the residues will have long been out of their system. So they get a longer life. It's kind of not. The farmer was faced with a, a case of acute lice levels. Tom? Acute lice levels? That's right. Thank you, sir and resorted to the use of the formaldehyde medication due to the lack of alternatives farms across southern and central norway are struggling to cope with high levels of lice in farms but that farm salmon got to be good the use of formaldehyde proved to be a 100% success yes because it kills stuff the uh food safety agency conceded that the regulation surrounding the use of the formaldehyde substance has been confusing The regulator was well aware of the company's actions. No action will be taken against the company, but to address the ambiguity, the regulator has resorted to fully banning the use of formaldehyde. The substance, which is allowed for use in other countries, such as Spain, Canada, and the United States, has been restricted due to its harmful properties to humans when breathed in or entered into skin contact. But the... uh, Delousing, according to the company, was carried out without risk for human skin contact or inhaling of the preparation. So just don't eat the fish. Simple. Nice. Simple. Earlier this year, a Bergen, Norway-based company, FishGuard, applied for permission to use formaldehyde for de-lousing, but uh, they were rejected. The agency expressed its concern at that time over the use of chemicals to de-louse, and argued that a new strategy for de-lousing needs to be fleshed out. <laughs> Where the use of chemicals is not the main measure, we've reached a point where we can no longer fight lice using a strategy that still relies mainly on chemicals," says the Norwegian Medicines Agency. So bring 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 your sea lice here, ladies and gentlemen, where we can uh, formaldehyde them up the wazoo, which is, um, I believe, a an organ that salmon have. Um, We now turn to the uh, Volkswagen episode, which has been um, another example of the magic of the market. They just, you know, they just put in a a little defeat thing into their uh, computer so they could sell more cars advertised as clean diesel. Now, um, that's not the only uh, pollutant in diesel engines, apparently. According to the BBC, atmospheric levels of a little-known byproduct from diesel engines are up to 70 times higher than expected. Researchers have found a long, that long-chain hydrocarbons, those are my favorite hydrocarbons, are significantly underreported in car manufacturer data. They are The hydrocarbons are a key component of two of the worst air pollutants, ozone and particulate matter. The authors of the report believe these hidden emissions are having a large impact on air quality in cities like <coughs> London. The tailpipes of diesel-fueled trucks and cars produce an array of emissions that have different impacts on the air people breathe. The nitrogen dioxide and particles that are emitted from burning diesel have a direct impact on human health. Diesel also contains more complex long-chain hydrocarbons whose role in air pollution has been a little understood till now. They can form dangerous air pollutants, especially ozone and particulate matter which are emitted to the air as unburned fuel or diesel vapor. Researchers from the University of York have been able to detect these complicated compounds in the London air using sophisticated measuring technology. Hidden until now, says the lead author, what we found is that actually a lot of this unburned diesel material we haven't seen before might be having a bigger impact on ozone and particle formation than petrol, that is to say gasoline cars are. Historically, no one has looked at these emissions at all. 50% of the ozone production in London in winter, was due to these diesel elements. In summertime, about half that. The authors believe these hydrocarbons have a direct effect on health. And the scale of these hydrocarbons in the air was far in the excess of the levels expected by government, which are based on data from emissions tests carried out by car manufacturers. So the, somebody should ask the senators who've been so vocal about the dangers of Iraqis, sorry, Iranians self-inspecting under the... Uh, Allegedly. Tom? Allegedly. Under the uh, regime of the of the uh, proposed Iran nuclear deal. Whether uh, car manufacturers self-inspecting and self-testing is a good idea. Now, for some of these diesel emissions, the real-world samples were over 70 times greater during winter compared to, to the regulatory inventories. The authors say these emissions are, quote, massively underpredicted. They're uncertain if this is a deliberate attempt by car manufacturers to conceal the scale of the problem or simply an emission through ignorance. What do you think? Pick ignorance? All right, then. And meanwhile, the the United Kingdom, France and Germany are accused of lobbying behind the scenes to keep outmoded car tests for carbon emissions, despite uh, moves by the European Union to update the tests and make them stricter. These same countries have been calling for a European investigation into Volkswagen's rigging of car air pollution tests. Leaked documents seen by The Guardian newspaper show the three countries lobbied the European Commission to keep loopholes in car tests that would increase real-world carbon dioxide emissions by 14% above those claimed. The EU's three biggest nations just four months ago mounted a push to carry over loopholes from a test devised in 1970, It's unacceptable that governments, which rightly demand an EU inquiry into the VW's rigging of air pollution tests, are simultaneously lobbying behind the scenes to continue the rigging of CO2 emissions tests, says a manager at the Green Think Tank Tank Transport and Environment. So it's, you know, it's the magic of government and the market working together to make all of our lives a... uh, A living dream come true. Because we are, you realize, we are living the dream. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Let's live the dream some more. And by the, I mean the... Soft,
2: listen to the warm. We can listen.
1: Well, last year we, last year, last week we had some good news in the news of the warm. This week, not so much. As carbon emissions continue to rise, scientists project forests will grow faster and larger. Well, that would be nice, due to an increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide, which fuels photosynthesis. But there's always a but. A new study by researchers at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. That's my favorite champagne, and the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom, finds that these projections are overestimated. They modeled future land cover and land use changes and other factors. Researchers found many forests won't be able to absorb as much carbon dioxide as predicted because they'll have a a shortage of another vital nutrient for plant growth, nitrogen. Forests take up carbon from the atmosphere, but in order for the plants to fix the carbon, it requires a certain amount of nitrogen, said uh, one of the Leaders of the study, if that ratio of carbon to nitrogen isn't right, even if you add many times more carbon than it gets currently, the forest cannot absorb the extra carbon, unquote. I didn't even know carbon needed to be fixed. No, I think was wrong with it. The paper was published in the journal Global Biogeochemical Cycles. The kid throws it in the, in the sprinkler every time. It deals specifically with what are called secondary forests, places that are regrowing after deforestation, harvest, and fires. Most forest on land on Earth is secondary forest, so don't don't count on the forests. Count on the trees, but maybe plankton, maybe plankton can help us. What do you think? Tiny zooplankton animals, each no bigger than a grain of rice, rice can't hurt you. Maybe playing a huge part in regulating climate change, according to research from the University of Strathclyde. That would be in Scotland. The zooplankton group known as copepods build up carbon-rich lipids, known to us as fats, as a nutritional reserve during late summer in the sur- while they're in the surface waters. Then they use these reserves to survive their winter hibernation period, which they spend around one mile deep in the ocean, out of contact with the atmosphere. The, so the CO2 released by the hibernating, co- hibernating copepods as they're using up their lipid reserves doesn't find its way back into the atmosphere. It's stored in the depths, sorry, stored in the depths, where it can remain for thousands of years. The team which undertook the research called this process the copepod lipid pump because they like words with peas in them. The research showed that one copepod species alone carries between one million and three million tons of CO two from the atmosphere into the depths of the North Atlantic each year. The overwintering of these copepods has been known about for a while. This is the first time their role in carbon storage has been measured, said one of the partners in the research. The results could double the estimates of how much carbon dioxide is or can be absorbed by the North Atlantic Ocean. They don't provide a solution to the emission problem, but our results, says one of the researchers, are certainly part of the process of building up a better understanding of how the planet is responding to increasing CO2 levels. The research was published in the journal Proceedings, of the National Academy of Sciences. And they they continue to proceed. This probably would be bad news. Science magazine reports, in the midst of the widespread decline in bees, particularly in the United States, a few bumblebees are coping. An interesting way of coping. They're developing shorter tongues. Shorter tongues for your listening pleasure, ladies and gentlemen. How's that happening? Why is that happening? In just 40 years, the tongues of two bumblebee species leaving high, living high up in the Colorado Rockies, and that's some high living, have shrunk by almost 20% in their average length, according to the study. A warming world has spurred these changes, so the researchers conclude, because the total number of flowers has declined in that region. The shorter tongue enables the bees to suck nectar from more different kinds of flowers. It's one of the best examples of the effective climate I've seen, says an entomologist at the University of Illinois not involved with the work, but the bee's successful adaptation may be the silver lining of a dark cloud. Because a variety of so-called long-tubed flowers, your Indian paintbrush, your clover, your wild indigo, your monk's hood, your bluebell, your snapdragon, your larkspur, and your foxglove, require long-tongued bumblebees for pollination. long tube flowers will disappear, says the researcher, and then you are losing biodiversity on a major scale. I hope the bees are listening. I hope you're proud of yourselves. And the snowpack in California's Sierra Nevada mountains has reached its lowest point in the last 500 years, primarily the result of the region's dry winter, according to researchers, and they don't expect normal snowpack levels to be replenished anytime soon. We should be prepared for this type of snow drought to occur much more frequently because of rising temperatures, said one of the researchers at the University of Arizona's laboratory of tree ring research give a tree ring to someone you love this holiday season won't you anthropogenic human-caused warming is making the drought more severe says the researcher valerie Truet. according to the u.s geological survey mountain snow is critical for balance in the natural water system the snowpack acts as a natural way to store water without this natural balance you got to buy it at the store Dry spells, no, dry spells last longer, crop yields suffer, and there's less water available for public use. Now more water is falling in the West as rain, less as snow, meaning less is stored. Not less is more, less is stored. Well, it can't be good news every week, can it? News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. (laughs) really surprising to hear that. Let's hear this instead.
2: It's time to end my lonely holiday And bid the country a hasty farewell So on this gray and melancholy day I'll move to a Manhattan hotel I'll dispose of my rose-colored chattels And prepare for my share of adventures and battles here on the 27th floor, looking down on the city. I hate. Seems so inviting Autumn in New York, it spells the thrill of first night glittering crowds and shimmering clouds. Is often mingled with pain. Lovers who bless the dark on benches in Central Park. It's autumn in New York. It's good to live it again.
3: Adam Buckholtz and this is uh, entrepod the podcast for want to be entrepreneurs and uh, for people who want to be one and it's uh, brought to you this week by our friends at quiffle.com. Uh, I invite you to take the free entrepreneurship free entrepreneurship inventory and see if you've got what it takes to make the Quiffle entrepreneur boot camp. You probably do that's how our friends at Quiffle make their money. Uh, today, my special guests on the Entrepod are two young guys who uh, understand that in the 21st century, uh, entrepreneurship and disruption are two sides of, uh, of the very same pea. Uh, Curtis Deranger and Brian Flynite. welcome to the podcast here in my parents' living room. Thanks, Thanks. Adam. <laughs> uh, Curtis, why don't you start us off here uh, and tell us what industry you've made it your uh, your mission to disrupt. Sure, Adam. Uh, my company is Farmboy With a PH. <laughs> That's right, with a PH. We don't do any farming or anything to do with farms, uh, but we're disrupting the pharmaceutical business one drug at a time. Wow, that sounds exciting <laughs> and uh, a little dangerous. Is this part of the sharing economy or, or, or something actually new? A little of both, actually. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell us about how Farmboy works. So it's an app-based service, mm-hmm. iPhone and Android. Yeah. And we even have a BlackBerry version, which we did just sort of as a joke. But it's based on a very simple insight. Many people don't finish taking their prescribed amount of medications. Which means that uh, there's a lot of half-filled bottles of pills lying around? Uh, Usually they're standing, but yeah. And uh, these are still at full potency, and they've been FDA-approved for something. And up to now, they've been doing nobody any good. And people can uh, put their pills up for what sale or auction through farm boy yeah it's auction based mm. we have a guy who used to work at ebay and he developed our software platform oh, cool and uh, what kind of medications are these so it really runs outside the gamut uh diet pills anti-anxiety drugs anti convulsives. pretty much anti-everythings right yeah right and um because you're just providing the auction platform mm. you're unregulated do i have that right yeah, that's our secret sauce. Mm. Uh, the transaction is between two users of our platform. Mm. They decide pricing and delivery details, although we do offer a bespoke delivery service, is what we call a, a real life plug in. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. And, and let me ask you uh, like a, a, a tough question. Okay. A young hedge fund guy got in trouble this week for uh, buying a drug company and then uh, really uh, jacking up the price of the drug. Is that part of your business plan, too? <sighs> so. Because it's an auction-based platform, mm-hmm. we do offer surge pricing. So if demand for a medication is particularly high, to be able to assure that there will be a supply, the price uh, is going to spike. And, of course, uh, we participate in that. Because you commission the transaction? Right. Oh, very cool. And uh, how does a surge pricing guarantee a large supply? So people see the price activity. And it incentivizes them to go check their medicine cabinets. Lots of people don't know what they have hiding back in there until they look. True that. Also, we have some hospitals jumping in when the prices go up enough because at that point, the return they can get on their unprescribed pills uh, can help them fill some gaps in their funding profile. I'm so excited about this. I'm almost eager for the next time I get sick. (laughs) (laughs) And my other guest, Brian Flynite, has also got a disruptive little enterprise going on. Hey, Brian. Hi. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, patent trolling has been a thing for a while now. Um, uh huh. Those are uh, uh, companies that buy uh, patents from firms, uh, like in Chapter Eleven, uh-huh. and then use them as the basis of uh, lawsuits against users of the products or services in the patents. So yeah, you read my talking points. <laughs> you start to get the hang of this podcast thing after a while. Uh-huh. Hey, my mom is signaling that took the cookies are ready. So right. Uh, so you saw how much money Warner Chapel made for claiming the copyright. To- Happy birthday to you. You mean before this week's court ruling that they have no right to it? Yeah. You can get people to pay a lot of money in royalties before someone has deep enough pockets or enough time to waste to take you to court. <laughs> so what is your company claiming the rights to? We're starting with Auld Lang Syne. The New Year's Eve thing? Yeah. Everybody plays it every year. It's a money machine. But so far, they've been doing it for free. Right. But that ride is over. We're... Uh, Out to teach them that there's no such thing as a free lunch in the music business. (laughs) Wow. Well, major legal talent uh, must be part of your personnel component. Oh, we're very litigator-focused in terms of our workforce, yeah. Mm. We've also got in our copyright portfolio, I've been working on the railroad. Mm. Sort of an oldie, but an oldie, though, right? Well, Mm. in the sense that almost nobody works on the railroad anymore, sure, (laughs) but the melody has been used for the University of Texas fight song and... That's just a freaking goldmine. Wow, of course. So you focus exclusively on copyright challenges? No, we also do trademark challenges. Oh. Uh, you know the company that claimed the copyright on Happy Birthday, Warner Chapel. Yeah, yeah, huge publishing company. Mm-hmm. Well, we've trademarked the name Warner Chapel and uh, we're going after them big time. <laughs> you mean they never trademarked their own name? Well, they tried to, but uh, they left out the forward slash. This one's a slam dunk. And uh, unlike Curtis, uh, there's no internet or mobile component to your business model? No, we're we're kind of old school that way. I mean, we do email our cease and desist letters, <laughs> but, sure. uh, but uh, email is old school, too. True that. Hey, those cookies are not getting any warmer. I want to thank my guests, Brian Flyknight and Curtis Deranger. I want to tell you that on our next edition, I'm trying very hard to get as our guest, Daisy Meisner, who's uh, starting to disrupt the for-profit education business. Uh, She's opening the first female-only military school's tough titties. Until then, I'm Adam Buchholz saying so long from my folks' house.
1: And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. A lot of showbiz apologies this week. You'd think that would be the case all the time, but no. Aaron Sorkin has apologized to Tim Cook, the head of Apple, for lashing out over the tech leader's critical remarks about the new movie about Steve Jobs that Aaron Sorkin wrote. You know what I think? I think that Tim Cook and I probably both went a little too far, Sorkin said on Saturday. And I apologize to Tim Cook. I hope when he sees the movie he enjoys it as much as I enjoy his products somebody wants a free laptop in a press junket for for the film in London Sorkin had ex- expressed the view that certain people working on the project took pay cuts to get the movie made he proceeded to criticize the Apple company in response to Tim Cook's comments on the late show about the recent outpouring of films about Steve Jobs as opportunistic quote I think that a lot of people are trying to be opportunistic and I hate this it's not a great part of our world Cook said of the film Sorkin said in his original reply, nobody did this movie to get rich. And if you've got a factory full of children in China assembling phones for 17 cents an hour, you've got a lot of nerve calling someone else opportunistic. That's what he apologized for. ABC News was forced to apologize for claiming an exclusive on O.J. Simpson deposition footage that actually aired on NBC News 16 years ago. That issue was a 1997 deposition involving Simpson in a civil trial over the deaths of his ex-wife and Ron Goldman. On Good Morning America, the network ran a report claiming the tapes had been gathering dust for 20 years and were newly discovered by filmmaker Lawrence Schiller. Google him sometime. The story ran with a uh, label at the bottom of the screen, Never Before Seen Videos Revealed. Washington Post's Eric Wemple, however, noted that NBC's Dateline had aired the same footage. ABC re- realized its mistake. We were wrongly under the impression these deposition tapes were exclusive and had not aired before. We learned this morning portions did air 15 years ago. We apologize for the mistake. We're just a news organization. We can't be expected to find out. That ladder was an interposition by your host. And uh, now, here's Stephen Colbert.
3: I also want to uh, apologize to you because I've said a few things about you over the years that, that, that totally are, uh, you know, in polite company, perhaps are unforgivable. Almost. Almost unforgivable. And some nice things. Uh, and
2: some nice things.
1: Not too much. <laughs> He's talking <laughs> to Donald <laughs> Trump.
2: Nice. But anyway.
3: I hope, I hope you'll accept my apology, Accepted. and I just want to give you the opportunity. Is there anybody
1: you'd like to apologize to right now yourself? Uh, no. Donald Trump, ladies and gentlemen, in one of his few appearances on American television this week. Britain's foremost military museum has apologized for accidentally labeling as terrorists Jewish soldiers who fought the Nazis as part of the British Army. A photograph of the Jewish Brigade from October 1944 on the website of the Imperial War Museum in London was captioned, quote, terrorist activities, men of the 1st Battalion Jewish Brigade during a march past, unquote. The Jewish Brigade was formed as part of the British Army, it was composed of Jews from Palestine, and was commanded by British Jewish officers. It fa- primarily fought against the Germans in Italy. He got that straight? The Simon Wiesenthal Center complained the image was removed from the website. A spokeswoman for the museum then apologized. This was the historic label we received alongside the photograph, accidentally uploaded in order to give the public access to our comprehensive archives. She said the photo was removed and the museum was looking in detail at all other captions. Remember Scott Walker? He was running for president until this week. He apologized to donors and supporters for the collapse of his presidential campaign, saying in a phone call that he saw no hope to turn around sagging fundraising fortunes. He was supported by the Koch brothers. What happened there? I guess they decided to be Koch zero. In a one-way conference call to donors, a one-way conference call, that's transparency and openness. In a one-way conference call with donors, Walker said he immediately returned to work as governor. He said he wasn't interested in a cabinet position if a Republican won the White House. He told donors he considered keeping the campaign alive and making a big staff shakeup, but decided that didn't seem likely to make the effort financially viable. When revenues are not meeting expenditures, you've got to look seriously at what sort of action to take. He said, my bottom line was wanting to make sure that a change would lead to a change in the outcome as opposed to delaying the outcome. His dis- unquote, his decision to suspend his campaign blindsided many of his supporters, even though it had been clear his campaign was struggling. His standing plummeted in the polls, this according to the Wall Street Journal. The Office of Tibet in in Washington, D.C., informed the University of Colorado Boulder this week that Dalai Lama would not be able to attend any of his planned events in the U.S. next month for medical reasons, including a visit to the Boulder University campus. The doctors advised him to take a complete rest. The Office of Tibet apologized to everyone at uh, Colorado University Boulder who's worked on the events and bought tickets. You can uh, meditate upon your refund and it'll happen. Now do you think about that? Um, But wait, there's more. Always more apologies. WGN-TV in Chicago this week issued an apology from General Manager Greg Easterly and News Director Jennifer Lyons following an error in the September 22 broadcast of their News at 9. Quote, Last night we ran a story to recognize Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. Regrettably, we... we failed to recognize that the artwork we chose to accompany the story contained an offensive symbol. Interposing here, it was a symbol of the word "Juden," uh, used in Nazi Germany with the Star of David, to that the Jews in Nazi Germany were required to wear to identify them as Jews. Now back to the statement: quote, This was an unfortunate mistake. Ignorance is not an excuse. We're extremely embarrassed, and we deeply apologize to our viewers and to the Jewish community for this mistake. We're investigating how this situation occurred. Hey, call the I-team. They'll find out. Oh, reviewing our in-house policies and our outhouse policies. No, and making changes in order to avoid such mistakes from happening in the future. Thank you for your understanding. We promise to do better. That's uh, WGN, part of... Uh, are they part of the Tribune that just announced... No, that's the TV part of Tribune. It's the other part of Tribune that announced at uh, their Los Angeles Times that the new publisher had uh, issued a memo this week saying part of his uh, strategy for improving fortunes at the newspaper was, quote, less news, unquote. And he he didn't mean, you know, the person. The, the apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. McClatchy Newspapers gets us back to... Uh, a story that we, we uh, comes around every election cycle, which is the um, slow motion thing. Can't call it a disaster yet because Donald Trump hasn't yet noticed it. It's a disaster. They're killing us uh, of our voting machines because paper and pencils are just too slow. Get with it. Finding the many of the nation's voting machines are perilously close to the end of their useful life. A study of voting systems in all 50 states recommends a series of steps that could be undertaken before voters cast their ballots in coming years. What do you mean, like next year? It's a $1 billion problem, according to the experts at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. They said it's likely too late. Get those birds out of here. It's likely too late late to replace equipment before next year's election, although local officials should be preparing emergency paper ballots. Well, how about just regular paper ballots and then skip the billion and taking other steps to minimize problems caused by failing machines? Officials should already be looking ahead to 2020, not the TV show. One of the things that was really shocking to me is how far reaching it has become and how few places have taken steps to replace their equipment, says the deputy director of the democracy program at the Brennan Center. Uh, The report was based on a wide ranging view of the nation's election systems. Some voting machine problems have been written about locally. Others have not. Even national elections, of course, in the United States are handled on the local level. Broad problems in voting systems can go unnoticed for years until a tight election. See 2000. When uh, the punch cards in Florida resulted in a series of inspections of those cards. And their hanging chads many argued a lesson until equipment is replaced will increasingly see problems flipped votes freezes shutdowns long lines and in the worst case scenarios lost votes and erroneous tallies florida's hanging chads high voter error rates and lost votes became central to the outcome and recounts that put george w bush well thanks to the supreme court put george w bush in the white house in some ways the lesson of florida of lesson of 2000 There were plenty of warnings about punch card machines before 2000, but they were reported locally. There were warnings from experts, but nobody was listening. Several battleground states have aging equipment. Ninety percent of the counties in Ohio are using machines that will be at least 10 years old next November. In Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia, and Florida, about half or more of counties have machines that will be 10 or more years old by next November. Ten years old. That's too old to be a voting machine. too young to vote. Equipment currently in use will not be replaced by 2016, according to the Brand Center. Until an upgrade last year, the voting system in Leon County, Florida, was more than 20 years old and still needed to use analog modems to transmit information. Oh, how slow. When he needed to replace those modems, the manager turned to eBay. They were even hard to find on eBay. The system was a great system for as long as it lasted, but as that modem issue showed, it was nearing the end of its life. You know, paper doesn't... They have had paper for a while now. More than 10 years. Leon County did upgrade in time for the 2014 election. Several other counties in the state are still on the same county Leon County used. Systems in place today were not designed to last for decades. No one expects a laptop to last for 10 years, the report noted. But these voting machines are not properly maintained, perhaps being stored in moist conditions or relying on outdated software. Forty-three states are using some machines that will be at least 10 years old next year. Officials from 22 of the 31 states that want to purchase new voting machines say they didn't know where they'd get the money to do so. Yes, I, I, I do take uh, contributions from uh, loggers and paper mills, full disclosure. But um, it, it does it It does bring back that uh that time in Florida in two thousand uh when two things were going on the the um the story involving the the Cuban child six year old who's now twenty one and talking to- n- the news um who had landed on the coast of Florida, recovered by a fisherman Donato Dalrymple, and the endless recount finally ended by the Supreme Court of those hanging chads in Florida. It's almost legendary now.
0: Here's a story they tell of one who fell from a snake that was almost grazed. He took one punch, if even that much.
1: How's that uh, war going on in uh, Syria and Iraq and all that? Well, according to the Washington Post, American-trained Syrian fighters, you know, the ones we trained and equipped, gave at least a quarter of their U.S.-provided equipment to al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria earlier this week. The uh, U.S. Central Command admitted that after they originally said the reports of turnover were a lie and a militant propaganda ploy. The command said it was subsequently notified that the Syrian unit had, quote, surrendered, unquote, some of its equipment, including six pickup trucks and some of its ammunition, to the al-Nusra front, al-Qaeda's arm in Syria, and uh, al-Qaeda's arm and part of its leg. The acknowledgement, the latest discouraging report concerning the $500 million train and equip program, which, as you recall, last week we were told had only four or five trained Syrian fighters active on the ground. Since then, military has said approximately 70 fighters have been added. But the CENTCOM statement from Central Command called the new information on the donation of the equipment very concerning and a violation of the Syria train and equip program guidelines. Well, thank goodness the guidelines didn't allow for that. So the guidelines are good. It said the equipment had been turned over voluntarily, adding the new Syrian force had indicated it gave the equipment to a suspected al-Nusra intermediary. Well, that's just for deniability. We wanted to ensure the public was informed as quickly as possible about the facts as we knew them at this time. We're using all means at our disposal to determine the appropriate response, said the spokesman for Central Command. What would the appropriate response be? Crying? The unit leader surrendered the equipment and who contacted the U.S. military with the correct information. U.S. military veterans have a hard time finding approved Syrians to train who are also willing to pledge their focus toward the Islamic State rather than deposing. Bashar Assad, whom the United States had said, has to step down. Confusing? Sure. The uh, White House and the Pentagon are considering providing arms and ammunition to a wider array of rebel groups and relaxing some vetting standards. However, that highlights the pitfalls. The, the new, new disclosures highlight the pitfalls of that strategy, where the United States has no troops on the ground in Syria and little means of accounting for the weapons it provides but little means of accounting. That sounds like the normal way of doing business at the Pentagon. Carry on, everyone. (laughs) Dick Cheney called them the worst of the worst. Those we held in Guantanamo Bay and still hold. One of them, Shakir Amer, is the last British resident in Gitmo, is going to be released and getting paid a million pounds in compensation after being held there for just 13 years. U.S. authorities had accused him, father of four, of being a close associate of bin Laden and a recruiter and a financier for al-Qaeda. He was never charged. He's a Saudi national who resided in the U.K. The Brits... In 2010, paid compensation to 16 men who were detained at Guantanamo to settle damage claims that it knew or was complicit in mistreatment there. And By the way, Amir was cleared for release both in 2007 and 2009 by the United States. But these things take time. And he had magazines in the meantime. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. Over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world, through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet. 7.490 megahertz shortwave, really, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com, available around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archive, harryshear.com and kcsn.org, and available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, TuneIn, and wwno.org. That'd be just like being released from Guantanamo after fifteen or sixteen years. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already thank you very much, uh-huh? of the show Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans, and our friends here at WNYC in New York for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this broadcast, the playlist of the music heard here on, and you're not your last chance, your next chance to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts and to wear them with Pride. All available at harryshearer.com except the Pride. And I'll be pestering you on Twitter at the Harry Shearer all week long. Come and join the conversation or enjoin it. comes to you from Century of Progress Productions it originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio network so long from Manhattan.